At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Slate Money is sponsored by Dropbox, trusted by people in over 4 million businesses worldwide to keep their files safe, synced, and easy to share with anyone. Try Dropbox for Business free for 14 days at dropbox.com business. And by Automatic, the connected car adapter that pairs your car to your smartphone. Diagnose engine problems, drive more efficiently, remember where you parked, and call for help after an accident. Save 20% with free shipping and a 45-day return policy when you go to automatic.com slash money. Hello, and welcome to the Lemons edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion, and I'm joined, as always, by Kathy O'Neill, the data scientist and blogger at mathbabe.org. Hi, Felix. Hi, Kathy, and Slate's Moneybox columnist, Jordan Weissman. Hey, Felix. How are you? Hello, hello, and guess what, people? We are going to look at your letters this week. We are going to read a couple of letters about subprime car loans, which was a topic last week, and we got some very good feedback on, so we're going to talk a bit more about that. And we're going to talk about the economics of the drought in California. But first comes Jordan Weisman, who's going to tell us, Jordan, why is college so expensive? And why are we talking about this? So we're talking about a few reasons. First, we're just coming out of uh, college acceptance season. The uh, Ivy Leagues once again uh, delivered all of their rejection letters, much to the dismay of all of the Upper East Side and Scarsdale and (laughs) various and sundry other similar neighborhoods. Um, And then on top of that, the New York Times uh, this past weekend ran a a sort of interesting op-ed by a uh, University of Colorado law professor named Paul Campos. And Campos is actually a pretty well-known 
writer and thinker now because he was one of the first law school scam bloggers. He was one of the first guys he to, from inside the academy to say we're essentially screwing over students. Um, and he's kind of taken his shtick, which had, I think, some value, uh, has had some value in the past, to the broader world of higher ed. And he wrote this op-ed saying the real reason college costs are so high. And he's saying the gist of the op-ed was... When college administrators, when deans tell you it's because states have cut their funding, they're lying to you. In fact, we've raised the amount of money we spend on higher education, you know, exponentially over the last four decades, and yet tuition is still going up. The real reason, or one of the major reasons that it's actually so expensive to get a degree now, is that there's all this administrative bloat. Presidents are paying themselves seven-figure salaries. There's a provost for everything, yada, yada, yada. And the, the higher ed kind of, uh, the, the higher ed wonk community is a pretty small and fractious group. We tend to disagree on a lot of things. This is one of the first op-eds I've seen everyone just kind of circle and go, this is terrible. Including people who write for the New York Times also all started tweeting how awful it was. So on Monday, I spent like no less than an hour and a half, like, trying to track down the numbers that Campos were referring to without hyperlinks or specific numbers. It was really maddening. And I was I was like, I'm going to blog about this, but I want to actually nail down what he's actually talking about, and I can't figure it out. And so I was really happy when I saw that you had written about this on yeah. Monday afternoon. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> Thank you. I, yeah, I mean, one of the problems with Campus's op-ed um, is just kind of the way it's shifted between time frames and different kinds of measurements. But here, here's the core issue. Um, you know, I, I think I should preface this conversation with um, anytime someone says there's one reason college is getting more expensive, they're basically, they're lying to you. There is no one reason college is getting so expensive. Yeah, he was just overshooting yeah. because yeah. he wanted to, like, really complain about college administrators, which, by the way, everyone hates college administrators. Yeah. Um, but, I, but you know, like his actual argument, which is like this, the cost from the state's point of view, didn't make sense. Yeah, and so... He, well, okay, yeah. hang on. Yeah. So, because you guys are just agreeing fervently no, no, with come, each yeah, other yeah. here. So, he wasn't entirely wrong. We are spending much more yes. on university. This is um, in large part a function of the fact that many, many more people are going to college these days than used to. Um, and so because the, you know, college costs tend to rise more or less in line with the number of students, the college costs have been going up a lot and, and states have been, are spending more money. The, the, you know, states have not been cutting in nominal terms, even if they have been cutting in per student terms. Well, they, recently they have been. Um, and it's sort of this question. They have been cutting in nominal terms? Yeah, especially in, yeah, uh, and it varies by state, but especially since the recession, it's been uh, brutal. And part of the reason this, this question is complicated is because it, the answer sort of depends on exactly what time frame you're looking at. But that per student issue is really important. I just want to reiterate it. And um, also, the other yeah, thing is, of yeah. course, that. In the wake of a massive recession, people are more likely to go to college because that's what you do when you can't get a job. There, yeah, there was some increase in enrollment at that time as well. Um, but the the per student thing is like is really core to understanding this, and it's I think it's one of the biggest divides between the the bigger higher ed community and how the rest of the public sees this issue, which is they do see, oh, we're spending all this money in general on education. Why is it not getting us more bang for our buck? And you know, there's a certain amount it costs to educate each individual student. And we really haven't figured out how to bring that down over time. And well, it's well, gone up. It has, it's been going up way faster than inflation. And I want to talk about why. But, the, you know, you don't see that whole cost in tuition. 
you know, in some states, it's maybe a, a, in some places, the state pays maybe a third of it. Somewhere it's two thirds. But that cost that the taxpayer takes care of has been going down. And so that extra money has to come from somewhere. And that's increasingly coming from tuition. Um, but then there is this question of why is the cost going up that right, you're gesturing right. to? And part of it is administrative bloat. Yeah. Well, and, and, and I have to just jump in here with a little note about my sort of hobby horse, which I'm going to write about quite a lot, I think, in the next week or two, um, which is Cooper Union, um, which used to have a very simple model where they would collect a bunch of rents from the land under the Chrysler building and spend it on teaching kids. And then they decided they wanted to be a world-class institution, yada, yada, yada. And so eventually, they basically, the entire model fell apart, and they found themselves having to charge tuition in order to be able to educate all of these kids. And this was really horrible and more or less destroyed the entire purpose of Cooper Union, which was designed to provide a free education. But more to the point, the act of charging tuition was hugely expensive. They just had to take out another $50 million loan just to be able to charge tuition because the amount of administrative bloat which comes along with that kind of thing is enormous. Financial aid is not easy to administer. Um, It's extremely expensive. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you have to interface with the federal government all of a sudden. But that that story about Cooper Union and their building is actually a perfect illustration of one of the two big theories about why higher ed costs go up, why why it's so much more expensive to educate each individual student than it used to be. And the technical term for this is called Bowen costs. Uh, it's named after a economist and former university president named H.R. Bowen. Uh, it's a pretty simple idea. It's basically that nonprofits and specifically colleges they don't make a profit. Instead, they move towards prestige. And so they're basically going to raise as much money as they can and spend all the money they can to get prestige. And as they spend more, their co- their basic costs go up over time. There's this sort of drive to get more expensive. They, they want swankier buildings. They want bigger name professors. Yeah. They want you know Nobel Prize winners, whatever. None of which really helps in terms of teaching. No. But it all gets reflected in the costs of tuition. And it signals quality and you get higher, you get better students maybe who show up as a result. And so you seem like you're becoming a better school, even if you're not really doing a better job teaching anyone. That's the, that's the issue. I just want to, I just want to, before you move on. Yeah. um, I I think about this a lot in terms of gaming of a specific model, because I'm a nerd. Um, So the U.S. News and World Report college ranking model um, kind of puts a roadmap for these colleges to figure out exactly how to define prestige and exactly how and, and to un- get that model. And unbelievably, um, the U.S. news rankings include cost as an indicator of prestige. The, the more expensive you are, basically, the higher up the rankings well, you are. Well, it certainly doesn't... In, uh, yeah, it's it the doesn't, inputs that go into it, essentially. Well, yeah. it, I don't think it it penalizes a college for having higher costs in any case. But I would say, I I just want to also want to curtail what people think is the real, um, one of the real problems, which is really, really fancy professor salaries. I don't think that's one of them. I think one of the the thing that's really expensive when you're gaming the U.S. News One World Report is things like student centers and buildings and new stadiums. Yeah, well, so that's the other big issue. And this is, what's interesting is that the, the fancy professor salaries, that's actually higher ed's preferred explanation for why its costs are going up. And and he, this is this is an idea that then, again, just to give like the econ term, it's called Bomal's cost disease. I don't want to repeat that too many times, but that's basically the idea that when you have um, 
a really, really labor-intensive service like teaching, um, the cost of doing it is going to go up faster than everything else in the economy, essentially because it doesn't get any more efficient. You still need one professor to teach a 12-person seminar. Um, meanwhile, salaries everywhere else in the economy are getting higher because everyone's getting more productive. And so you still need to pay the professors more over time, even though they're not really doing much more work. And to be fair, there are professors, and yeah. I, I could name a few in mathematics, that create an arms race for their services and yeah. their the prestige that they attach to themselves. And there are these like million dollar professors. There just aren't very many of them. And so th- that's true. And no, what, but but yeah. the fact is that professors in general, I'm not, you know, we. I don't think it's the million dollar professors that are causing these high tuition fees, but it is the hundred thousand dollar professors, who, you know, who are making decent middle class salaries and there are hundreds of thousands of these people. And they're being the replaced by adjuncts, though. Yeah. So, I mean, actually, yeah. if you look more carefully at, like, the overall average costs, they're not going up that much. Yeah, well, exactly. They're not going up a ton. And that, but th- but this the is total the number of professors is going up yeah. with the total number of students. That's yes. true. The, the sad part about this story is, is that there's basically... Yeah, most professors are not being paid, like full-time professors are not being paid exorbitantly. They are getting what we now consider a decent upper middle class salary for someone who has their level of education. The problem is they don't produce a lot more than they used to, which is what then drives up the cost of their service for a student. Um, The way they have, colleges have dealt with this is by hiring adjuncts, 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 adjuncts. And that's created this awful situation where you kind of have this temporary workforce in the academy and people are getting paid sometimes, you know, food stamp wages to teach English or whatnot. Um, And it has restrained costs some, but if you go and look at the data, um, even in spite of that, this is what's really depressing about it, even in spite of the the fact that adjuncts have become such a huge part of the academic labor force, instruction is still becoming more expensive per student. They still haven't totally restrained it. And so when you look at um, when, when academics go in and they try to figure, is it the fancy professors or the fancy buildings, essentially? That's, or is it just the professor salaries? Or the, the administrators? Yeah. They I think it's the I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing with yeah. the New York Times op-ed here that it's a large chunk of it is the administrators. It is, so what they find is the Bowen costs, those, the, the administrators and the buildings and whatnot, and the, the prestige play, um, that's about $2 in extra costs for every $1 in like the faculty salaries. That's kind of, that's at least some of the most recent research suggests. Because the fact is yeah. that you don't need a climbing wall to get a good education, but everyone yeah. seems to decide that they but, need yeah. to have a climbing wall. It's interesting. I mean, two things. Like, first of all, you know, the alternative model seems to be MOOCs, which is like nothing. You get no services. I feel like there should be a middle ground. And the second thing is like, as a society, we're a rich society. If we decide to spend a lot of money on education, that's probably an okay thing to do with our money. Right. But the question is, I think, not, you know, we have to be careful who exactly we're, we, we're talking about when we say we, because there's two different models of paying for higher education. One is that you have, you know, half the population going to college and that's the half which should pay for college. And the other one is everyone, whether they go to college or not, should pay for the half of the people who go to college out of their taxes because, you know, it helps the broader economy. Right. And it's intuitively not that difficult to understand why people who don't go to college feel a little bit aggrieved about being asked to pay for the 
college fees of the people who do go to college. It's just yeah. a, an expanding and evolving concept of what it means to be educated. Yeah. And I'm sure the people who never got an elementary school education felt a little bit strange about everyone getting a free elementary school education. Um, it's, you know, it's a kind of a transition cost. I'm going to be optimistic here and think that at some point we're going to decide, hey, it is expensive, it's worth it, and let's figure out how to pay for it in I, a reasonable way. I do think also we need to be careful about talking about when we say college is expensive, which colleges we're discussing. Um, a lot of, I mean, the, fa- the costs have grown fastest by far for private universities. And that's not surprising. They have the biggest drive to prestige, right? They're the ones who really care about those fancy buildings and climbing walls. They've also grown pretty fast at, um, universi- at four-year public universities, some of which... The most famous ones certainly are essentially privatized now. They're, they're, they get a, a bare minimum amount of public funding. But if you go to the University of Michigan, you're practically going to a private school at this point. Uh, same with Penn State. Um, when you go further down the food chain, um, when you get to like community colleges, their, their expenses, what they're, what they're shelling out or what they're spending to educate students are actually falling at this point. They are restraining. So this is, this is where we're going to end on a happy note that if you want to arbitrage the U.S. News and World Report rankings, you go down the rankings as far as you can. You don't pay for stupid pre- research university prestige and you just go to a community college and you get a decent education without having to pay through the nose for it. Well, we can argue about that another episode. All right, so that's that's in the next episode. (laughs) Before we get to that next episode, though, I do need to tell you all about Dropbox because I'm very happy that Dropbox is one of our new sponsors, is one of my favorite services. Kathy, you wrote an entire book on Dropbox. Yeah, my Occupy Alternative uh, Banking Group wrote the our book called Occupy Finance on, the, uh, on Dropbox, and we basically shared files. I was It was exciting, actually, because once you have Dropbox, you have this little icon on your computer, at least on the Mac, and you actually get to see when people are updating. So it's kind of exciting. To, it was a group project, so I'd see, oh, Someone just updated. I wonder what new wonderful thing is in our book. It is an amazing piece of technology. And in fact, I remember a story once about how Steve Jobs called the Dropbox guys into his office and said, how did you do this? Because we've been trying to do this, you know, in our finder for years and we haven't been able to do it. And somehow the Dropbox people managed to integrate it into the Mac operating system just seamlessly. Yeah, I just hope they give me more storage space now that I've talked about how great they are. Well, interesting you should mention that because there's this thing called Dropbox of Business. Now, there's this big theme, I think, in the world about sort of businesses taking a bottom-up approach to their enterprise software, that everyone in the business is already using Slack, so they say, okay, we're going to use Slack. Everyone in the business has already got an iPhone, so they say, okay, we're going to support the iPhone, rather than them sort of coming in from, uh, you know, from above and saying, okay, everybody, you're all going to use Windows XP. Um, so Dropbox, I think, is a bit... Dropbox for business is like this. Everyone in your business is already using Dropbox. It's a great little way of sharing files and collaborating. And so what you do with Dropbox for business is you just... Nothing changes for your employees. They still get to use it. They use it for work. They have unlimited storage space. And then you, as the employer, as the enterprise, you get all of those things which you need for compliance. You get centralized administration. You can onboard people, offboard people. You get controls. You can, you know, integrate security software and e-discovery. So, you know, if people, if you get sued, then, you know, you can find out what people were saying, you know, in, in files and all of that kind of stuff. And it's 
all secure because Dropbox is actually a very secure system. So you basically, as far as your users are concerned, they are doing what they love to do already and they're already using it. But as far as you as a business are concerned, all you need to do is sort of check a box. Anyway, that is Dropbox of Business. It's a clever little expansion of the standard Dropbox business model and we would urge you all to, st- to try it out. Um, Kathy. Yeah. What's going on in California? Oof. You know what? It's not good. There's, uh, they're experience, experiencing a drought. 82% of the state in particular is an extreme drought. If you've seen those pictures, it's devastating. Um, this is a problem. This is a huge problem. California grows a majority of our vegetables and fruit in our country. Um, almost all the broccoli, artichokes, walnuts, and kiwis, for example, are grown in California. So it matters to us. It matters to our food supply that this is happening. Uh, California also has much better yields um, than than places other places that try to grow these things. But the, because, a, because it grows them year-round because it has that famous California weather. It doesn't really have seasons. Yeah, the only problem with California is no fall. Um, <laughs> the problem, the, there's a real problem, though, because of this drought. Like, they have been used, they have an unsustainable water usage problem in California. The, the amount of water they always used to get from the Sierra runoff is just not coming anymore. And it looks like we've got what the, what you know, the PIMCO people down in Laguna Beach might call it new normal in terms of annual precipitation in California, which is way lower than it used to be and is just not enough to support all of the agriculture and you know, Los Angeles. There used to be snow on those peaks, and suddenly they're not getting it. And so. I mean, when I grew, when I went to call, I went to UC Berkeley in 1990, and I remember being kind of surprised by the sign in my bathroom, which was a shared co-ed bathroom, by the way, um, which said, you know, if it's brown, flush it down. If it's yellow, keep it mellow. I remember being, wow, what's that all about? And people were like, you know, turn off the water when you're brushing your teeth to save water. Now, that's all good. I'm glad people are doing that. I mean, there's lots of people in California, so they should do that. But if you think about the amount of water that agriculture uses, it really seems kind of pathetic. Um, people are talking about, you know, in, in agriculture, you talk about acre foots. And just to give you some idea of like the prices varying, variation because of this drought, prices have skyrocketed for waters. Um, it, what, like it used, it used to be like um, $140 per acre foot. Now it's $1,100 per acre foot. That's like almost 10 times as expensive. In some places, actually $2,000 per acre foot. But just to give you an idea of how big an acre foot is, it's uh, like think of an acre, which is 66 feet by 660 feet, and then put a foot of water on that. You're covering an acre of land with a foot of water. <laughs> You're That's flooding an acre. Three hundred and twenty-five thousand yeah. gallons of water. Um, there is a vast range in water prices in California, and a lot of farmers, you know, grandfathered in in the Central Valley, actually don't pay any money for their water at all. It's there's all manner of weird idiosyncrasies about this. But the big question here, I think, you know, the the standard sort of one hundred and forty character response to this is, well, if we only priced water properly, all of these problems would go away. Um, Kathy, is that true? Well, I mean, it is kind of surprising to me that water has only gone up by 10, a factor of 10. In a certain sense, I, I feel like this isn't following the rules that we think of in a free market. And there's there's a couple of good reasons for that. Um, number one is um, it's not expensive enough because it really doesn't seem replenishable. Like this is, there's like a, it seems like there's a finite supply and we're almost there. Um, but the other thing is that water isn't a commodity. At least I've con- concluded from looking at these things. 
uh, looking at this uh, issue that water isn't a commodity in the way we think of commodities. Like commodities we think of as like little widgets that we that are interchangeable with each other. But water is, because of its massive size, essentially, such a local issue. Like you have an acre foot of, for $2,000 in one part of California in the south, and in the north, you're gonna it's going to be like eh, $200. Because it costs that much just to transport it down for starters. Exactly. Yeah. I think there's just one, um, just to rewind a bit for anybody who hasn't been following this issue. The reason agriculture is so important here is that the stat that's been getting repeated is 80% of California's usable water goes to agriculture. Um, and that's, that's again, why pricing it for farmers specifically is so key here. If you know, the governor essentially put in this ban or put on these limitations on people in Los Angeles and cities using a certain, uh, you know, watering their lawns, things along those lines. Um, but the response, he, he let the farmers off the hook. And that that's, I think, part of the reason there's been such a kind of, there was sort of a uproar about it. It was like, this is the source of the problem. It's not even being well, dealt the, with. The far- well, the farmers have been reducing their water usage. Um, a lot of the agriculture in, in California has been sort of... Um, Curtailed. Curtailed. Yeah. Um, one, one of the, the one that everyone loves to hate right now is almonds. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and one of my favorite data points here is that the amount of water that is used to grow almonds in California is equal to the amount of water consumed by all of the residences and businesses in San Francisco and Los Angeles combined. Yeah, let's all hate on almond but, farmers. But let's not hate on almond <laughs> farmers because there's, there's a reason for this. Um, the almond farmers uniquely cannot curtail their water usage because almonds grow on trees. And if you curtail your water usage, then the trees die. And then there are no almonds ever again. And California not only produces nearly all of the almonds produced in the U.S., it produces nearly all of the almonds produced in the world. Basically, if California curtailed its almond production, there wouldn't be any almonds anymore. Right. And it's a great point. And I was going to I was gonna make three categories, actually. I'm going to talk about the, the plants, like rice, where you can just grow less rice. And, and or it'd export be fine. it to wetter countries, like yeah. Vietnam. Right. You know. And then there's the, tr- the orchards, where you're like, if you don't grow your almond trees this year, they will die, and you will not have a tree next year. So you kind of like, it's much harder to just take off, take a few months off on that farm. Which is yeah. why the w- crop we should really be hating on here. More than anything else. I, I know what you're going to say. The here. third category. Is it al- are you about to say alfalfa? I'm going to say alfalfa. Oh, I was no. going to say cows. Well, well they're, they're that's related. the same thing. Oh. Because the, the reason why cows use so much water is because they eat alfalfa, and alfalfa is very thirsty. And this is the really crazy thing. Whose cows are eating California's alfalfa? China's cows are eating California's alfalfa. This is a function of the fact that we have a massive trade deficit with China that is that we get huge, you know, loads and loads of shipments of stuff from California coming into long, you know, into California, into Long Beach from China every day, or shipping container after shipping container after shipping container. And then those shipping containers need to go back to to China to pick up the next shipment of stuff. And there's no point in sending them back empty. So what do we do? We fill them up with alfalfa with 
cattle feed, which is basically we're exporting precious California water to China, which really doesn't need precious California water. It's ridiculous. So I want to ask about the alfalfa, though. So the argument I've heard in favor, aside from the fact that you have to keep growing the almond trees every year or they die, is that almonds are also a pretty high-value-add product. Yeah, that they make protein. They're delicious. Yeah, they make almonds every day. They make a lot of money. Um, you know, I, I have my little packet of Trader Joe's, just the right size, and my, de- you know, almond packets and 200-calorie thing in my desk. They're wonderful. We love almonds. But alfalfa... So given that you're essentially shipping, it's probably fairly low cost to grow. It is just grass other than the water. And you are shipping it for free to China by just throwing it. I mean, is there no va- I mean, is there no profit margin there? Is it not, you know, is it, it really? It all depends not- on the price of the water. I guess. If you price yeah, the water properly, correct. then there's no profit margin. And that's what margin. I was going to ask. So this really does come back to pricing the water properly in the end. If you want to get rid of the alfalfa, you just need to price the water. You know, true. Or um, if you want to get rid of the drought you stop growing alfalfa, and then basically you've solved California's can water you, problems can you, at a stroke. Can you ban can, the farmers from, from uh, growing alfalfa? Is can, there a way to do that? Can I just raise a, like, a sort of meta issue here? Which is, um, I'm glad, I'm not glad this is happening, but I'm glad <laughs> it's happening first to a rich place like California. Because this is a something that we all think because of global warming, etc. This is going to happen all across the world. And the fact well, it's that, not. I mean, you know, it's been happening in te- Bolivia for a long right. time. So Texas is also, but been, it's going to get yeah. worse. And yeah. I, I feel like it's good for it to start and not really start, but it's good for it to be happening right here in in California and where we, our agricultural techniques are actually going to improve quickly, so that we could spread that kind of new technique. I mean, I know I'm I'm just feeling optimistic today. Kathy, this is very uncharacteristic of you. I. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm not sure where all of this bizarre optimism comes from. But, you know, I'm happy that you're optimistic. And you know what else I'm happy about, Kathy? What's that? I'm happy that I have a little widget in my car, which is made by a company called Automatic. How's that for a segue? Wow. Well done. <laughs> well done. What is the widget? The widget is the Automatic. It's the little thing which plugs in underneath your steering wheel or somewhere in, okay. the, in the sort of where your legs go roughly in the front of the car. <laughs> I'm I'm not a big expert on how cars work, but I do know that you <laughs> plug in the Felix, do you have a driver's license? <laughs> I do. I got my driver's license when I was thirty two. I was very proud. Wow. How many times do you have to take the test? Uh, well, I took it I failed to get a driver's license when I was seventeen in the UK. But the first time the first time I took the test in New York, in Red Hook, I got my driver's license. And then I, a few years later, I, I got a car. And, and the car has a little thing where you plug in this little thing. And I, I'm really being technical here, as you can tell. Very, very much so. I, I believe that there's this thing called an engine. I really don't understand how it works. But what, what I do know is that every so often, there's this thing which comes on on the dashboard. It says, check engine. And... I know that I am not alone in being completely confused and, and the car sounds fine and either I ignore it, which feels bad, or I drive it, you know, out of my way to the mechanic who's going to charge me a fortune and just, you know, bash it something with a hammer and says, okay, you're done or there was nothing to worry about. But now I have a widget. Okay. And the widget can talk to my phone and the phone can actually tell me what that engine light means and half the time that will just solve the problem like that. And you know what else the widget can do? What? It can tell me when I'm driving well, because I, I'm not a very good driver. I learned late, and I don't really know what I'm doing. But it can tell me if I'm braking too hard or accelerating too fast or speeding too much or that, or that kind of thing. And, you know, it can even tell me 
as an absent-minded kind of guy, where my car is because it has a little GPS. And so if, if I lose it in the Walmart parking lot because I go to Walmart all the time, um, then it will tell me where I am. Isn't that cool? Very informational. Okay. So that, crash detection, Internet of Things, you name it, it's all wonderful. Buy it for $99.95 at automatic.com. Or if you're smart and you're a slate money listener, buy it for $80 at automatic.com slash money. And then that's it. So one, one, one go deal, no subscription fees, 80 bucks, you have a widget, your car becomes connected to the internet. Speaking of cars. <laughs> Speaking we're, of cars. We're all about segues today. We're going to segue from our automatic ad to our letters. Now, last week we talked about subprime car loans. Um, next week, we're going to talk about subprime manufactured housing loans. This week, we're going to talk about subprime car loans. Again, because we got a couple of very good letters from listeners. Uh, the first one came from a chap called Zoltan um, in Michigan, and he took issue with our idea that the smart thing to do if you're a borrower is not get the car loan from the dealer, but rather to just get it from your local credit union. And he said, ah, yeah, yeah, but information asymmetries. The credit union doesn't really know how nice the car is, how much it's worth. He says, only the seller of the car has good knowledge of the condition and value of the car. And that confidence in the value of the security because these are secured loans against the car is incredibly important to the lender when the borrower is subprime because there's a good possibility that there's going to be a default and you're going to have to take the car back and that's your security. So you can't just use a, a blue book thing. You have to know the individual car and you're not going to pay $500 to appraise the car when the car is only worth $5,000. I think this is a good point. Um, does it really cost $500 to appraise a car? Also, it sounds ridiculous. So part- I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of a good point, but I do want to throw in the obvious response, which is a lot of these used car dealers lie about the, the value of the car. So they might know the true value of the car. That doesn't mean they're going to, you know, communicate that to the no, buyer. No, no, but it doesn't matter. The point is they can underwrite the loan because they know the true value of the car. No one else can underwrite the loan because no one else knows the true value of the but car. But you do have services like Carfax, which are supposed to essentially be a third party that tells you what the car, the condition of the car, what it's really worth. I mean, so you don't have to go on the sketchy used car dealer. If you work. were a credit union lending to a subprime borrower, right. would you trust Carfax? <laughs> All right. I was just throwing it To out underwrite there. your loans? But I mean, going back to the car dealer, knowing the value, I agree that because they can always um, re- repo the car, they do care about how valuable that car is. But that hasn't, I mean, according to our understanding of the actual subprime auto uh, industry, that hasn't prevented them from inflating way beyond the actual car's value, the cost to the to the to the buyer. So I'm just saying like the I don't think this is a particular concern. It's not certainly not the only concern. If you're adding Wait, 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 hang on a sec. Yeah. We we, we dealt last week with the broader concerns about the subprime yeah. car market. All we're talking about here is this question of can you replace loans from the dealer with loans from a credit union? And Zoltan 
Ambrose is saying, no, you really can't because the credit unions don't have the ability to underwrite that if you are, you know, trying to sell, you know, issue loans for a few thousand dollars to subprime lenders against an automobile security, that's like a bad business to be in unless you really know that car. Basically, the credit union's just not going to, the credit union won't be there to help you out. Here's what the credit union would be better for, though. They would be better for giving you a loan that you could actually afford. And so I'm just saying there's there's different ways of looking at loans. And and that is certainly not taken into account by the, the, the seller. But credit unions would take that into account. So they would care a little bit less about the value of the car, actually, if they know that you can repay the, the loan. Right. But ex ante, if you're a subprime borrower, then your ability to repay, your, your statistical likelihood of repaying the loan is low enough that they're going to want security. Um, we also got a letter from David Shute, who was saying that basically a, a similar point, I think, to what I was making last year, last week, which is that cars are incredibly important. We, we all basically agree on this. You need your car to get to work. You need your car often just to collect unemployment and other entitlements. And no one is going to lend you money um, at all because you are a bad credit. The only way you can borrow money is to go to one of these subprime auto dealers because they will bundle up a loan with a car and give you that bundle. And it's the only game in town. Now, you know, securitizing these loans and selling them to, you know, investors is a a kind of weird and crazy and not particularly intelligent thing to do from the point of view of the investor, possibly, because these are dubious loans. But the you know, the bundle is where the value is. You know, and I'm going to – I actually just uh, went to a uh, credit – subprime credit conference and civil rights in, in Washington, D.C. on Wednesday. So I kind of – this is very much in my mind. And it, it, it brings up a very important point that everyone is always confused about. I'm just going to say the point. I'm not going to solve the problem, but I'm going to make the point, which is that you have – when you have predatory loans, the, it's always sort of – you're always talking about a desperate person who can't get a loan otherwise. So it always seems like a, the best of a terrible situation for the individual. And that, and even so, even so, we don't really want predatory loan as a market out there because as a whole, it's, it's increasing inequality, it's entrapping people into debt, um, poverty cycles, et cetera. Even though for the individual at that moment, it's actually the best news that they've heard in a long time. It's the same, it's the same kind of debate we have about uh, payday lenders, you know, yep. it's, a, it's, a, it's a variation on that. I mean, I do think that you, you kind of have to weigh the equities, right? How many people are being helped to essentially get there, get to work, get to their unemployment office, what whatnot, versus how many people are ending up defaulting and or unable to pay for their house because they're paying off their car um, or unable to pay their rent because they're paying off their car. Um, and they're, I, this should be an empirical question. I, I don't know if anyone's actually answered answered it yet if uh, it's a net good or net bad. Um, it's hard to measure that, but it's yeah. a, this is the right question to ask. And the other right question to ask is, why do so many people get so desperate in the first place? Yeah. But that's, I mean, and that comes just back to the fact that we're... Uh, okay, yeah, so now yeah, Kathy's <laughs> true colors are coming no, out. I mean, the, the optimistic Kathy has finally been beaten down by the subprime car loan <laughs> industry. It had to happen. <laughs> it had to happen. Kathy. Yes? What's your number this week? My number is $3 billion. Wow, that's a big number. It's a big number. Um, I'm just going to quote from Jamie Dimon. Oh, I'm begin- I'm going to guess this is a dollar number. <laughs> um, no, it's a year's. 
Oh, the three billion years. Yes. Okay. The, oh, we're having fun with standard deviations. <laughs> yes, we are. Jamie Dimon, um, the J.P. Morgan uh, chief, um, la- um, described a swing in the U.S. Treasuries from last October as, an, quote, an event that is supposed to happen only once in every three billion years, unquote. Um, and it's just when people say this, which happens regularly, especially around financial crises, it just drives me nuts. No, no. But he, he was he knew exactly what he was saying. He wasn't saying that this was a one in three billion year occurrence. He was saying that, you know, there are fat tails in market moves, that they are not normally distributed, that even though this was like a seven or eight standard deviation move that we saw, and like it didn't look like a big move. It was 40 basis points or something. But apparently that in the treasury markets counts as eight standard deviations. And if things were normally distributed, then that would be a one in three billion year event. Clearly... In financial markets, these things happen much, much more, much, much more frequently than that. And that was his point, was that you need to expect these things to happen. That might be his point. Um, it still bothers me as a modeler that people pretend that these models are accurate enough for you to even say that kind of thing. I think, you know, it may, it's shorthand. It's become shorthand because it is so ludicrous. Um, but what it really speaks to is the fact that these risk models or these, you know, what's supposed to happen in the in the market kind of uh, expectations are just wildly inaccurate. Well, I mean, I don't think anyone in the market, to be fair, uses a normal distribution as a risk model. That's wrong. <laughs> that is absolutely wrong. I mean, at least they're log normal. Nope. You tra- take it from me. For, for, the for, entire entire value at risk model is based on normal distribution. Oh, the, yeah. Well that, okay. That is the entire. That is the industry standard for risk modeling. We're going to get into, um, you know, fat tails in a future episode. But it's true. Eight standard deviations. If you're normally distributed, it was one in three billion years. And if you have normal models, that's a bad thing. Um, my number. I'm going to leave Jordan to go last. That's fine. My number is $5 million because I really love this number, I have to say. Um, If I gave you $5 million... That'd be great. That would be great. And you, I'm sure, could think of some amazing things to buy with $5 million. Oh, okay, yeah. But here's here's my question. What is the least valuable thing you could buy with $5 million? Art. Alfalfa. (laughs) (laughs) It's, It's... I think I might have found... A way of spending $5 million, which gives you basically no value. At all. Like, <laughs> it, it's, it's, a anyway, suck of value. It's, it's maybe, of you know, it's value. just you look at it and you go, why would anyone spend $5 million? Or hamburger. And, the, and you, you have to just be so mind-blowingly rich that money has no meaning at all. Here's, here's the context. The context is a uh, new... Um, skyscraper going up in Midtown called 220 Central Park South. Mm. The asking price, according to the offering plan, the asking price for the um, 48th floor, the entire floor, because it's one of those skinny scrapers, is $64 million. This is, it's it's a big apartment. It's 6,500 square feet. You get a 96 square foot balcony, five beds, six baths, library, but, you know, you're paying basically $10,000 a square foot for this. $64 million for the full floor apartment on the 48th floor. Now, there's an identical apartment 
up one floor on the 49th floor. Same apartment, same layout, same square feet, which is $69 million. For the extra $5 million, you get to be like 10 feet higher. And in the elevator longer. And in the elevator longer. What does it do for your view, though? And you get like, you get, I don't know, 20 feet of extra view. 20 vertical feet of extra view. Okay, but like if you're that rich that you're buying the $69 million apartment, I could see how that, like these small aesthetic differences in your like Jordan's commanding view of New York City. <laughs> but remember, you, look, remember if you're going to feel like an, on Central Park South, so it's not like there's, uh, you, you'll need to look over anything to see the park. And frankly, my favorite like, view of the park is normally from about the seven or eighth story. That's where you just get to like see the top look, of the trees. Look, if you want to, if you're buying an apartment explicitly to make yourself feel like a god, then like you want to be as high up in the sky as possible. I totally see. This is this is rational as far as I'm you, concerned. You 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 reckon it makes sense to to spend an extra five million dollars to be one full higher? I mean, what's the the marginal uh, like difference to that buyer? I think I think you're right. Your your thesis is correct. At that point, that person has so little value for money that the extra ten feet that's worth it. Okay, let's move on to your number, Jordan. My number is kind of the opposite. It's this is back to a classic, uh, you know, correlation matrices versus Apple thing. Even this is this is even more lowbrow. High. I'm so lowbrow here. My number is five. Actually, technically, it's four or five, which is the number of times a family in St. Paul, Minnesota, had to call Comcast to cancel their service after their house burned down. <gasps> their home burned down, and they literally they could not get Comcast. At one point, apparently, the woman who was, was calling on behalf of her father uh, said, uh, was dealing with this agent, and he said, we can't do it. And she said, um, he said, we, no, we can't cancel it. And then she said, okay, well, then send someone to fix our service because there is no service. And he said, that makes no sense. The house burned down. This was the actual <laughs> Um So this is, and I, you know. I, I feel like something was automated too much in this story. Well, I think, I think their processes were yeah. a little too automated. Someone got, they, the company eventually apologized and did cancel the service. But just, again, this is what happens when you don't have a, a, a real consu- when you don't have real consumer choice. You get Comcast's customer service fighting to cancel the sur- your cable that has literally been burned to the ground. Anyway, that was my number. Okay, that's it for us this week. Thank you for listening to Slate Money. If you like the show, subscribe. Uh, you can find us by searching for Slate Money in the iTunes Store. If you like it, re- leave a review. If you don't like it, leave a good review anyway. Um, write to us, slatemoney at slate.com. Give us some personal finance questions for Carl Richards, who's going to be here in a couple of weeks. We like him very much. Um, and give your thanks while we're at it to Audrey Quinn, who produced Slate Money this week, to Joel Meyer, who managing produced Slate Money, and to Andy Bowers, who's the executive producer. We are part of the Panoply Network. The entire roster of podcasts can be found at itunes.com slash Panoply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.